0: Well, open your Bibles tonight to the book of Acts. We're going to hear about the deliverance and salvation of the Lord, even in times of great distress and trouble, even in times of great persecution. In Acts chapter 16, uh, a couple of weeks ago when we last read through this, we found our group, Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke, they had gone through uh, Asia Minor They had gone through what is now Turkey, and the Lord instructed them to go to Macedonia, which now, parts of that are now still Macedonia, parts of that are northern Greece. And uh, in this region, they came to the the city of Philippi, and and you remember they encountered Lydia and her uh, group of believers that were praying at the edge of the river outside of the town, because Philippi, if I can remind you, was a Roman colony, not a lot of Jews there. Because you, you remember most of the time when the Apostle Paul and his group came into a new town, came into a new city, they went straight to the synagogue so that they could preach to the Jews and also the Gentiles that were seeking God. In this place, there was no synagogue. All they could find was a group of believers in God, a group of Jewish believers and maybe a couple of Gentile proselytes gathered on the outside of the city by the river. Philippi, as I said, a Roman colony, probably not super opening to this small group of Jews. And when we left off, we kind of read quickly through the story of Paul and Silas in jail. And so tonight, that's what we're going to tackle. They've left the group of believers, and they began to preach the gospel in the city of Philippi. And if you'll turn with me to Acts chapter 16, and uh, we'll go ahead and, into verse 14, or sorry, Verse uh, 16. It happened that as they were going to the place of prayer, so this is the same place of prayer that they found those believers outside the city, a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us, who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune telling. Now, you may have read in the original Greek, you may have a note in your column, there where it says the spirit of divination, that's uh, originally the spirit of Python. Now, I've heard a lot of people talk about this, and I'm sure they have a lot of good things to share. Um You have to know God didn't name it a spirit of Python. This is what the Greeks called it. The reason the Greeks called it this was because there was an oracle at Delphi. This is the oracle that you've heard so much about. Maybe some of you are thinking, I've never heard anything about it. Well, just pretend you've heard something about it, and you'll seem smart to all your friends. But the oracle at Delphi uh, was was a, a girl who was basically a slave girl. She didn't have much control. And uh, she would get into a, a state, a trance. Some people have the theory that there might have even been some, some <laughs> maybe a natural gas leak or something that would get her high. But she would be taken over by a spirit. And as she'd go into that trance, there were elders around her that would translate. As she began to babble and mumble, they would, they would interpret what she was saying. For centuries, the Greeks had gone to this oracle for every bit of wisdom, so, so generals and kings, they'd all go to this place and ask her, should we go to war? What should we do? Should we do this? Should we do that? Before they made any major decision, they consulted the oracle. And she was not the only oracle. There were other oracles. And when the Romans came along, they adopted this, pra- this practice. So the emperors would have oracles, and they'd say, should we go to war? Should we make peace? Should we make this new law? And before they did anything, they'd consult the oracle. Now, I believe, I believe a couple of things. I believe that there are people that pretend to be spiritual that are just fakers. I believe that there are psychics that are just using clever tricks, cold reading techniques to just mislead people and manipulate people. But I also believe there's a real supernatural spirit world, and there are people that are under the oppression of evil spirits. And I believe those evil spirits can know enough about you that they can make you think they're reading your thoughts and they're reading your mind But they're just doing recon. They can't tell the future. But you know, like the mafia could say, it would be a shame if somebody were to attack your building tonight if you don't buy insurance from us. And you don't buy insurance, oh, what do you know? Your building gets set on fire. Well, the mafia doesn't have supernatural fortune-telling abilities. They just knew, we're going to set your building on fire tonight. So evil spirits can do the same thing. They can say, we have an attack coming, and we're going to act like it's a new thing. Or they could have, you know, I'm not going to get too far into this because I don't want to put the emphasis in the wrong place, but it's plausible to me that a spirit could know what this guy's saying over here and report it back to you, and you, you think it's somebody reading thoughts. What they can't do, they are not God. Yeah, right. They're created beings. They're not God. They're fallen angels. They do not have the ability to read your thoughts. They do not have the ability to create. They do not have the ability to tell the future. They can create that illusion, though. And so there was a slave girl here, and she's not being clever with her tricks. She's got a real spirit. The reason I know that she's not being tricky or manipulative is because when the evil spirit is cast out of her, she no longer has the power, which tells us she had a power to begin with. And the reason it was called the spirit of Python was because the oracle at Delphi was called the Pythonian prophetess. And she was called that because Apollo was supposedly this god, the god of, that would oversee this divination, and he was often represented by a python. I've been, Spiro and Tina took us, we've actually been to, the, to Delphi, and, and it's amazing that all these city-states, all these Greek uh, individual cities that would often go to war with each other, they all have this truce when it comes to this place, and they'd build, so there's still treasure houses that the Athenians put up, there's there's this thing that the Spartans gave, and they would heap money and treasure and, and all these things of this place just so that they could know the future. You can imagine what kind of business the people that own this slave are getting because of her gift. She doesn't have a gift. She's being tormented and oppressed. And I wonder what drew her to those people. Because, you know, when the man who had, a, you know, the legion of demons in him fell at the feet of Jesus, there's part of that that says even the demons have to bow to Jesus. There's another part of that, I believe, that there's a a man that wants to be delivered. And I imagine there's a battle there. And I imagine for this girl, yeah, you know, I I think if those evil spirits were smart, you know, maybe they're trying to disrupt the meeting, maybe they're trying to cause a disruption, but I think there's part of this girl that genuinely wants to be there. She finds herself at this place, but she is disrupting. It says she's bringing her masters much profit By fortune telling, you know there's not an unsaved person on the planet that will willingly or easily give up much profit. They're going to fight for it. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out saying, these men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. She kept saying it over and over again. She continued doing this for many days, but Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. Now, we look at this and we go, she's saying all the right things. But I've been in meetings much like this. Just because somebody's saying the right thing doesn't mean it's the right spirit. Paul is not annoyed because he's just, he's just a temperamental, grumpy old man that's just like, oh, shut up. This is not why he's annoyed. He's troubled in his spirit. In fact, annoyed is probably not the best translation. Troubled is a good one. He's troubled because he recognizes this girl, even though she's saying good things, this is an evil spirit that's sent to disrupt. This is an evil spirit sent to harass. And he finally is done with it. He turns and he says to the spirit, this is how we know he's not just being grumpy. If he was just being grumpy, he'd say, somebody shut this girl up. He's not moved by grumpiness. Do you know grumpiness doesn't set anybody free? Short temper doesn't set anybody free. You know what set people free? Jesus looked on people and moved with compassion. He healed them. So the apostle Paul is not annoyed at the girl. He's annoyed that there is a spirit that has not just bugging us, but it's oppressing her. He turns and he speaks to the spirit. And that's how we know he is not just being grumpy. Because if he's being grumpy, he wouldn't have said anything about a spirit. He, he wouldn't have known about a spirit. He knew there was a spirit. He said, get out of her in Jesus' name. That spirit came out at that very moment, and she's delivered. Isn't that awesome? But when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone. Now, you don't, we don't see this in the English language, but it's real clever in the Greek what Luke does. He uses the same verb in, in those back-to-back verses. In, verse, in the, you know, the verse before this one, in verse 18, he says, the spirit came out. And then it says, when the master saw that their prophet had come out, they got angry. (laughs) You see, everybody else looked at this girl and said, a demon has come out. The masters looked at the girl and said, our money has gone out. (laughs) Not everybody's moved with compassion. We got to pick which side we're on, don't we? (laughs) It's pretty easy in a situation like this, but you understand. So here's what happens. He said, they, their hope of profit was gone. They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. In verse 20, says, when they brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, these men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews. Now, let me just say something here. This wouldn't have worked in Jerusalem. Might not have even worked in Antioch. Well, maybe in Antioch. But especially in Philippi, where the only group of Jews have to meet outside the city by the river. What's he doing? These guys are playing on the racism. We already don't like these guys. These men are throwing our city. Now, do you think they're throwing the city into confusion? They cast a spirit out of one girl. Oh, no. (laughs) The city's in an uproar. They're not doing any of that. They throw our city into confusion, being Jews. So one of their charges is just, they're Jews. They cause trouble. It seems pretty racist, doesn't it? But it works in Philippi. They know their crowd. Crowd's on their side right now. Oh, yeah, I knew something was fishy about those guys. And then he says this, and are proclaiming customs, which it's not lawful for us to accept or observe being Romans. Now, let me tell you, until Hadrian came along quite a bit later, uh, you know, what they're saying in these, in these colonies outside there is not entirely true at all. They're probably, now even before Hadrian, there were some laws passed and different emperors persecuted the Christians, but, but throughout uh, Roman history, they had been tolerant of Jewish custom, customs. So this is a bit of a lie, but it's working on this crowd. They're already nervous. They're already not liking this new group. And so they're, they're basically putting them on trial with a bunch of lies. Nothing's really true about it, but It works. Because here's what happens. When they struck, uh, sorry, in verse 22, the crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. Now, I'm not going to go into it too far, but the group, there's two different groups here. There's the magistrates and the officers. There's another group here. The the magistrates were, were in charge of keeping the peace. They were like judges, but also... You know, the, basically the Roman officials on the ground. They were they were making sure they were keeping Pax Romana, the Roman peace, in this colony. So they would do they'd do the you know court cases. They they'd make summary rulings and all this. But they had another group, which were basically their enforcers. These were the guys that actually went and uh, brought people before the court. These were the ones that would carry out the punishment. And they had. Um, they had as their symbol uh, a group of rods bound together with an axe coming out of it. That was their official symbol. What's interesting to me, it may not be interesting to you, is that this was called the fascist because it was talking about it being bound together. Mussolini in, in, in the you know, 30s brought this back And that's why the Italian group that that Hitler helped at the the very beginning were called fascists because they they took that original symbol and used it. So that's a bunch of useless trivia you probably will never use, but there you go. So these guys could be a little bit thuggish at times. When your logo, like the stuff you got on your mugs and your t-shirts and your flags is a group of rods that you use to beat people with an axe coming out of it, You're not the rosiest of people. This is not the Rotary Club, you know? (laughs) These rods were not just symbolic. These were the rods they used to beat people. And that was their favorite form of punishment. You notice it doesn't take a lot of egging on or a lot of encouraging for them to get these rods out and want to use them. In fact, we're going to find out later there's a big problem here. There was never a trial. Now, if these guys were just plain old Jews, there didn't have to be a trial. What they don't realize is that these are Romans. Paul, his dad, got official honorary Roman citizenship that was passed on to him. So that's why he goes by Paulus. Paulus was his Roman name. Saul was his Hebrew name. Silas also has another name, Silvanus, which is his Roman name. These two guys had Roman citizenship. And even in Philippi, it was illegal to beat somebody without a trial if they were Roman. If they're one of these foreigners, go at it. Have fun. But Romans, no. Roman citizens. These guys, we're going to find out later, these magistrates could lose their jobs over this. Nevertheless, you might wonder, why didn't Paul and Silas speak up and say, hey, we're Romans? I imagine it's these uh, slave owners and the crowd that's making most of the noise. They rushed to judgment. They tore the robes off these guys and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. It's not a pleasant thing at all. Verse 22, verse 24, sorry. 23. I'm going to stick, final answer. When they'd struck them with many blows, so this is not just a light beating, it's a heavy beating. They struck them with many blows. They threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison, and he fastened their feet into the stocks. I want you to remember, these are two preachers. Now, I'm not trying to bash my own thing, but they're charged with preaching. It's not the most dangerous thing in the world. Now, we know it is dangerous to the kingdom of darkness. It's dangerous. It changes the world. But come on, guys. Do they really need to be put? They're put in the innermost, the dungeon. Their feet are put into stocks. They are securely fastened, not just their hands, but their feet as well. This reminds me of what they did with Peter. Remember when he was bound? Hand and foot, guards on either side of him, and then a guard at every door. The man is a fisherman turned into a preacher. Why are you going through all this overkill? Because what these guys realize is we may not understand it, but there's a power at work here. They know there's a power at work with these guys. They don't want to mess with it. So they bind them securely. They put them in the innermost part of the prison. And in verse 25, But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, don't harm yourself for we're all here. And he called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And he took them the very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house. And having set food before them, they rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. What a wonderful story. Isn't that amazing? Let me ask you a question. Why the earthquake? If Paul and Silas aren't going to escape... What's the point? See, I used to read this story and think that the earthquake was to save Paul and save Silas. But if that were the case, they would have been halfway back to Jerusalem. It was to save the jailer. The earthquake was all to save the jailer. Maybe it was also to demonstrate the power of God. Paul and Silas didn't get released because of an earthquake. They got released, as we're about to find out, because the magistrates came back and said, You're more trouble than you're worth, and tried to let them go. So the earthquake did not really give them an escape plan because they stayed put. But it showed the power of God and it saved a jailer and his family's life. Saved their souls. Now I want to just just let's focus on the obvious most important thing here that they've just been beaten severely for doing nothing more than setting a little girl free. They've been thrown into the very dungeon, innermost part of the prison. They've been bound hands and put their feet put in stocks. Now, that's a good time to be depressed, but they're not. What are the two things they're doing at midnight? Now, for us, that's no big deal. We're all up at midnight. Maybe not all of you. Some of us are up at midnight, Back then, midnight, this is the middle of the night, sun's been down for a while, go to sleep. They don't you know don't, don't have electricity, nobody's up. These guys are still up. And they're doing two things. They're praying and they're singing. Yeah. Hymns of praise to God. These are two important things. Because in the darkest, worst, most oppressive, most depressing time, their instinct or even their 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 knowledge of what they should do is let's first let's pray. Let's bring this to God. See, we forget sometimes these are real people. They feel the same way as you'd feel in that situation. They're hurting, they're they're uncomfortable. I'm sure there's fear creeping in because you don't know what's going to happen in the morning. People have tried to kill you before. You don't know these people. It was crazy that they put you in the prison to start with. What's to say, who's to say that they won't try to kill you another time? He, this has happened in other places where, where they'd stone him for something like this. So I'm sure there's fear trying to creep in. I'm sure there's depression. I'm sure they could be like John the Baptist who's in prison and says, gee, I don't even know if he's the one. But instead, they start to pray. Because what's the first thing you do when you got a problem? You pray about it. And then secondly, what they do is they begin to sing hymns of praise to God. Not the blues, not how rough it is, but hymns of praise to God. The fact that it uses the word hymns, which of course means something a little different than hymns. Right now when we say hymns, we think of old songs, but there were no old Christian songs to them at the time. But I'm sure a hymn, it could have been something they made up on the spot, but more than likely, it's something they'd sung together with their brothers and sisters. It helps to have some songs in you that you couldn't write at that moment. It helps to have some songs in you that recall the goodness of God even when things around you don't seem so good. It helps to have some songs in you that have eternal value that are not so stuck in the moment that they bring you to a place where you realize this is not too big for our God. You see, the book of Philippians, written to this same group of people, remember when Paul wrote to this group of people after they'd become a church for a while and after he was once again in prison? The the letter to the Philippian church the church that got such a, a population boom from the jailer's family is also the letter that he wrote in one of the darkest prisons that the Romans had. Yeah. And we've talked to you about this before. The Mamertine prison was, was depressing. It was gross. It was deadly. It was infectious. There was so many things wrong with it. It was a sewer that they converted into a prison. And from that prison, where bodies would drop and be left for a while, where rats couldn't swim but would jump from body to body in this sewer. Where, where people would get infections simply because of, their, of the sores that would rub against these, these, these rusty uh, shackles. And, and their sores would get infected. And they'd have all these diseases. And, and many times they're, they're held up and not, not getting a chance to really move around. Except for a couple times a month where somebody could come and visit them if they paid the right people. From that prison, the Apostle Paul writes a letter that mentions joy more than any other book in the Bible. And in that letter, in the fourth chapter, he says, don't you worry about anything. Don't let yourself be anxious over anything. Nothing. Nothing. Be anxious for nothing. There's no loophole there, is there? Don't worry. Don't be anxious about anything. But in everything. But in everything. Listen to that. So see the contrast? Worry about nothing, but pray about everything. Because he says, in fact, let's just read it here. Hold your place in Acts. He says in in Philippians chapter 4, Verse 6, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Now, prayer can mean a bunch of different things, right? Prayer is communication with God. So there's different types of prayer, there's different types of communication, just like there's different types of communication between you and your family members. But supplication means that you are bringing a request to God. Supplication shouldn't be your whole prayer life. Do you know what I mean? Your whole time with God shouldn't just be stuff you need. But it's got to be a part of your life. Because there's nothing too small or too big for God. And he has just commanded you here, bring it to me. No matter how big it is. If it's causing you to worry, you bring it to me. In everything by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. You say, well, God, don't you already know? Yeah, he does. But he lets you ask. Bring it to God. And then he says, supplication is always accompanied with something. Supplication with thanksgiving. Now, you know that Jesus said that when you pray, you are supposed to pray in this way. That whenever you pray, believe you have, past tense, believe you have received it when you pray. That's what Jesus said. It's echoed again when James says it. James comes along and says, when you pray, don't, don't let there be any be doubting. It, it's already done. If you are double-minded about this, you won't receive anything from God because you're like a reed shaken by the wind and a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. He says, don't let that man think he'll receive anything from God. So Jesus says, you're supposed to believe you receive it when you pray. John says, if we pray according to his will, that's important. If we pray according to his will, he hears us. And if he hears us, We have whatever we ask. We have it. Jesus said when you pray, you're supposed to act like you have it because you do. I've said this before, but you know, I always use spirit. I'll do it again because why break with tradition? But if spirit were to give me a check, and he wrote an amount on it, and he signed his name to it, and he said, here, I want to give you something. If he gave you a check... Say for $10,000, how many of you would say, well, we'll see if it cashes, and then you'll get a thank you? How many of you would just take it and go, we'll see about this? (laughs) Take it to the bank and go, huh, what do you know? It cashed. (laughs) I'm surprised as you are. Go back to Spiro. Hey, it cashed. Thank you. Do you know what that says? That says that you don't trust Spiro. That says that you don't believe he's got what it takes. He doesn't have the power to back up that check he just wrote. That's kind of a a scumbag thing to think about a guy like Spiro. Now, there's some people in your life I understand. (laughs) (laughs) But people you love and trust, you you say you're good for it, right? Well, you know, if there's anybody that's good for his promises, I'm not talking about you saying, dear Jesus, give me a unicorn. Amen. I'm talking about the things he's (laughs) promised, if there's anybody that's good for it, it's God. So you don't wait until it cashes. You don't wait until you see it. You, you know the minute he, you promised it, the minute you prayed, you have it. You, that's the appropriate time to say thank you. If Spirit gave me that check, I'd say thank you. I know he's good for it. This check is as good as a $10,000 bill to me. So this is the way we're supposed to act. Now, now, if you really believed you received what you prayed for, See, most of the time when we're praying, we're praying in a place, like, like if you're like Paul and Silas here, most of the time when you're praying, things don't look good around here, and most of the time that shows in your face, it shows in your body language, it shows in the way you're treating your family members, you're stressed out, you're anxious, I get it, but he says, stop being stressed out, stop being anxious, stop being worried, bring it to God, then he says, with thanksgiving, because thanksgiving is you saying, I believe you did it. Not believe you're going to do it, but you did it. How would you act if your prayers were answered? How would you act if your prayers, as small or as big as they could be, how would you act if your prayers were answered? You wouldn't keep your frown. You wouldn't be moping around. You'd be rejoicing. Well, Jesus said, when you pray, believe you've received it, if you really believed it, you'd rejoice as much now as you would when you saw it with your own eyes, because that's how sure you are that God keeps his word. The appropriate time to say thank you is not when you see it. The appropriate time to say thank you is when he's granted it. So they're thanking God. And you know, I understand that there are times where you go, it's taken everything in me not to just break down right now. That's a good time for you to start singing. And some of you couldn't carry a tune in a bucket, but you still should sing. <laughs> because there's something about the way God created us where we sing certain melodies and tunes and can't possibly stay sad. I remember when I was playing for my dad when he'd been diagnosed with cancer. And I was playing for him in the, in the room. And he goes, Before I started playing, he says, Hey, don't play me any of that sad minor key stuff. I said, okay. <laughs> so I made sure I played stuff that, because you know what? That's not what he needed right then. There's music that can drive you further into your depression. You know that? Yeah. There's music that will drive you further. I, I'll tell you, um, I, 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 I've, I've got a few stories of people that God supernaturally delivered from suicide. He sent people to find them right before the noose had killed them. And they were playing, you know, multiple stories. They had music playing. These teenagers were listening to this music, got them to a place where they just couldn't, it took them over. they was just listening to it, listening to it, and just fed to what they were already feeling. I talked to a, another friend who was a social worker. He said, you know, a lot of times we'd come upon a scene, not every time, but a lot of times with young people, we'd come upon the scene. He goes, it's the same thing. The music that'd be playing, you go, no wonder. There's a great power in music. There's a great power in it. Now, there's stuff even happening, even in the physical, and the neurological level, that is really, really cool. You're designed to respond to certain things. There are certain notes that I could play together on this piano. If I hit it, there's one progression. I won't play it right now, but it's so gross sounding that monks back in the Middle Ages called it the devil's triad. And your brain is pre-programmed to go, ah, oh, what are you doing? You know, it's not good. But there are other melodies and notes. You begin to sing and you can't stay sad. I mean, you could try to frown while you sing it, but you can't. Because, and it's not, and you know, I'm talking about the notes, but even bigger than that is, are the words that are put with it. Because what are they singing? They're singing hymns of praise to God. Do you know what happens when you're in your dark places, when you're discouraged and you're disappointed and you're oppressed and you're feeling like the world's falling apart? You are focused on you and all of the bad things around you. But when you begin to praise the Lord, your focus goes off you and it goes off those things and it goes right on to God. And when your focus is on him, all of a sudden, your view changes because all of a sudden, you see the greatness of your God, and in light of the greatness of your God, everything else seems entirely puny. It's like the Israelites that came from spying out the promised land. Remember? Ten of them came back and said, we saw them, that we were like grasshoppers in our own sight, so we were in theirs. We, we looked at them, their fortresses, they were giants. We're too small, we're too small, we're too small their focus was on giants and them and when you compare those two things you are too small time to be depressed what did the two Joshua and Caleb came back and said you know what you know where their focus was if god promised us the land he'll bring us into the land He says, if God gave us this land and if God is with us and if he's pleased with us, then then," Caleb says this, he says, then those giants will be our food. Because giants compared to you are scary, but giants compared to God are tiny. Suddenly you went from looking like a grasshopper in their eyes to them looking like popcorn shrimp to you. Because of the greatness of your God. As Paul and Silas are singing, something's changing. Now, here's what I believe. Now, you can have a different view on this, but I don't believe God's just saying, all right, compliment me again. Compliment me again. Before, I guys, You build me up. Pump me up before I do something. I don't think that's happening. I don't think he's like, you know, real insecure. Like, tell me, guys. Tell me I can do this. Tell me I can do this. God is not insecure. But I'll tell you what changes when you praise. Yes, it pleases God. Yes, it changes the very atmosphere. Yes, it makes evil spirits nervous. But more than anything, it changes you. And your soul and your spirit begin to be lifted up. And you begin to break through. And all of a sudden, your faith, which is on the edge, your faith, which is up to this point, pretty much in your head, I know I'm supposed to believe this. I know I'm supposed to believe that Jesus is the healer. I know I'm supposed to believe that God is my provider. I know I'm supposed to believe that he's a deliverer. When you begin to sing those songs of praise and you begin to praise God and thank God, all of a sudden, your tongue is doing what James says your tongue always does. He says, oh, how great a ship is turned by a tiny rudder. How great a horse is turned by a little bit. And he says, that's what your tongue is. Your tongue is the rudder that steers the whole ship. Mm -hmm. So when you're singing the blues and how depressed you are, you are merely turning in to the storm that's already turned your ship the wrong way. Mm -hmm. And you are aligning your rudder with the way the ship's already going. And don't be surprised when it goes over the edge. You see, the rudder moves before the ship, doesn't it? So many times our mouth, the things we say, just reflect what's already going on. You know what I mean? How you doing? It's tough. It's bad. I'm not talking about being fake. I'm not talking about pretending things are okay. But I am talking about choosing wisely what you choose to focus on and what you choose to praise. Because you can either choose to praise God or you can choose to praise your problems. And it's important. It matters. Your soul is the battleground here. So James says, if you'll turn the rudder the right way, everything else falls in line. He says, if you can control your tongue, you can control your whole body. So if I'm praising the Lord, not only is the atmosphere different, not only is God pleased, but all of a sudden I've turned my rudder towards him and the rest of the ship turns with it and my soul and my spirit and my body are all in line with what God has said, and now we're just waiting on Him to do it, Amen. because in our minds, it's already done, and as they sang, you know, Paul and Silas, I doubt they asked for an earthquake, I doubt they knew what was going to happen, you don't need to give God the game plan, I used to always do that, I figured out what He should do, and I, I said that in prayer, so Lord, would you get, you know, I don't, I don't need to give Him the game plan, He's got a better one, Pray the promises of God. If he says, now sometimes he'll say, this is what I want to do. Ask me for this, like he did in Ezekiel 36. If that's what he says, do that. But let him pick the game plan. And I'm sure they didn't know what was going to happen. But as they're singing, as they prayed and began to thank God and sing songs of praise to God, those songs that they learned when things were good really came in handy when things were bad. Don't let anybody tell you you're being fake by singing those songs when you don't feel those songs. Don't let anybody tell you you're being fake by saying, you know, I don't want you to say when your leg's broken, don't go around saying, I didn't break my leg, I didn't break my leg. You did break your leg. But you know, the truth that's bigger than that, Jesus is my healer and I am healed. See, that's not lying. That's focusing on something else. I'm not talking about the power of positive thinking. I'm not talking about new age nonsense. I'm talking about the word of God. There is a degree of power even in the world to thinking the right way. But we must remember that Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Thank God you're not apart from him. (laughs) And as Paul and Silas begin to praise and as they begin to sing, an earthquake comes and lets their chains go free and in the end saves a jailer and his whole family. Just to wrap it up, (laughs) the magistrates come in, in verse 35, the chief magistrates sent their policemen. Do you know what the policemen are? This is the same group that beat them. You look it up in the original language, these are the guys. These are the guys that beat them with rods. Now, they're the guys that have to go and let them loose. They go They send their policemen saying, release those men. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the chief magistrates have sent to release you. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. (laughs) But Paul said, they have beaten us in public without trial. Men who are Romans, we're Romans and they beat us without a trial. They could lose their jobs over this. He says, and now they're sending us away secretly? No, indeed. I love that. No, indeed. Here's a guy. You can't even kick him out of prison. We just want to let you go. Just get out of here. Nope. Not on those terms. He says, no, indeed. Let them come themselves and bring us out. That's guts, man. The policemen reported these words to the chief magistrates. They were afraid when they heard they were Romans. And they came and appealed to them. And when they brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city. Isn't that great? You see how the tables have turned here? Now, let me me just say something real quick. I don't believe Paul's saying this to be a jerk. I don't believe he's saying this to be belligerent. I don't believe he's saying this to get his revenge. Do you know why he's doing this? Because the name of Jesus has been smeared. Mm -hmm. Now, there are going to be times where they're going to be persecuted for the name of Jesus. And they'll take it and they'll rejoice that they were identified with Jesus. But he wants it made very clear. We didn't break any laws here. Let us go publicly. We don't want you going about saying we let them loose because of a technicality. or We let them loose because the prisons were full. You let, us, you let everybody know why you let us loose. And they did. And they begged them to leave the city. They went out of the prison and they entered the house of Lydia. And when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. At this point, Lydia has already become the first host of the first church of Philippi. And God was not hindered by a little jail time. God was not hindered by a beating. God was not hindered by opposing forces. In fact, God wasn't hindered at all. I do believe that what Paul said in another place, he said, we working together with God. He says that more than once. He called, they, they call themselves co laborers with Christ. It's important that, that you realize that God didn't do anything without, without people. He used people. And in fact, those people have to be in agreement with him. He's not going to force you to do his will. He's not going to force you to be delivered. There are going to be times where in order for you to be delivered, you have to change your attitude. you have to change the way you're looking at this. And you have to say, God, you are the deliverer. And you have to sing when you feel like crying. And you ha- I mean, this is not telling you to be, once again, it's not telling you to be fake. And there's nothing wrong with gathering your brothers and sisters and saying, these are the issues, pray with me, encourage me, let's stand together. You don't have to hide your issues from your brothers and sisters. That's why we're here. But don't focus on them. Don't let that be the thing because that's what the Israelites did who saw the giants, who saw the fortresses, they focused on that. They focused on them and they focused on those things. Instead, we want to be like the two good ones. Because what does the Bible, what does God call their report? He calls it a wicked report, He called it an evil report. He called those hearts wicked, unbelieving hearts. But we want to be like Joshua and Caleb who bring back a report that God is pleased with. What is God pleased with? He's not pleased with lies. He's not pleased with falsities. He's not pleased with a fake story. He is pleased with you saying, I see the problems. I see the issues. But I see my God. And he's much bigger. And I choose to bring my request to God. And like Philippians 4 says, and the God of peace, when you bring that with thanksgiving, and you turn from depression to thanksgiving, like King David did so many times, Then the God of peace himself will set up a guard around your heart and mind so that you won't keep giving way to fear and discouragement and doubt. The God of peace will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Some of you need the guard around your heart and mind right now. You're in the middle. You're in stuff right now. You need God. I mean, the word that he uses is like a military term. It's the term you'd use when, you when, you know, like for instance, when Paul was in a city and the, and the soldiers surrounded the city so he couldn't get out. He uses the same word for God guarding your heart and mind. He sets up, he sets up his guard around so nothing can get in. And that fear and that discouragement and that depression that's been getting to you so much, it must give way to praise. Weeping may endure for a night, But joy comes in the morning. It may start with some tears, but it must always end in a shout of joy. David showed us that so well, didn't he? He started out saying, Lord, they're all around me. There's one place where he says, all I can see are my enemies. Then he says, Lord, you'll lift me up on a rock so I will see above my enemies. There's another place where he says, oh, why do the wicked prosper and the righteous do so bad? Why are they doing so well? God, why are, they, why are they making money? Why are they doing well? And we're struggling here. He says, and I vexed me. He talks about how hard he was taken, how depressed he was about it. Then he says this, and then I entered the sanctuary of the Lord. And then I perceived their end. Surely you have set them on a slippery place. See, you got to get out of your moment and step into the bigger picture of eternity. This is not permanent, and your God is much bigger than this. Don't get stuck in that moment. Don't get stuck in it. The best way to get out of it is to bring your request to God And then begin to thank him. And then they begin to praise him. If you gotta laugh, laugh. If you don't feel like laughing, just laugh anyways. If you gotta dance, dance. If you gotta shout, shout. Because it's impossible to stay passive while shouting at the same time. But do whatever you gotta do to get your focus off of you and off of the things that are going wrong and get it back onto God. And don't be surprised when earthquakes come. And don't be surprised when doors open, shackles fall off. And don't be surprised if he does it in a way that completely surprises you, because that's how God does it. Amen? Amen. Stand up with me tonight.